Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to the November 2020 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollinger. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we'll be celebrating the sampling of an asteroid, hearing about a refuelling station in orbit around the moon and discussing what a Biden presidency means for space exploration. And that plan, I remember it, to put a woman on the moon by 2024. Our guest is space writer, author and broadcaster, Dr. David Whitehouse. And David, the, the last time you were on, you said, and I quote, President Trump is a good space president. Uh, do you still stand by that? Actually, believe it or not, I do, because there's always been this seesaw of of good space presidents and bad space presidents. And um, actually, there have been Democrats and Republicans. If you look back at the history of Democrat presidents, they've not been very good space presidents. So whatever you say about Trump, um, he has kick-started a good space programme. Well, we'll talk more with David about that uh, a little later on. Here is, though, some good news from Asteroid Bennu. We're going in. We're going in. Touchdown declared. <gasps> All right. Sampling is in progress. Congratulations. How are you guys feeling? Uh, transcendental. I mean, I can't believe we actually pulled this off. It's an exciting time for space fans at the moment. There was the launch of NASA's SpaceX Crew-1, the first crewed commercial space flight to the International Space Station, and also the successful recovery of the OSIRIS-REx sample return mission, which first headed towards an asteroid called Bennu in September 2016. Three, two, one. And liftoff of OSIRIS-REx. Its seven-year mission to boldly go to the asteroid Bennu and back. The spacecraft collected its sample from the surface of the asteroid, the first to do so, by the way, as planned, in a briefly impressive 16-second touchdown. But a small rock got wedged in the way of the container ceiling until a nail-biting two-day process finally got the job done. Well, the sample's now on its way back to Earth, and one of the scientists waiting for it is Dr. Sarah Russell, who works at the Natural History Museum in London and is a member of the OSIRIS-REx science team. 
the team of people working on Osiris Rex is absolutely massive. So the, I think there's over a thousand scientists and engineers who are involved in the mission. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. It takes some um, really broad expertise to get the thing up there and then to, you know, get it in orbit. It's set so many world records. It's the smallest thing that's been orbited around and, uh, uh, it's an incredible, incredible thing. And then, then of course, you need all the scientists to sort of interpret the data that's coming back from it. Ah, that's a key word, isn't it? Interpret, because you could all, almost at first, first thought might be, OK, a team of a thousand scientists and apparently and six, 60 grams and engineers and 60 grams of material. So that material isn't going to every scientist. It will be going to specific teams within the team, I assume. Yes, that's right. So only a subsection of the, of the bigger team uh, are actually going to be working on the sample analysis side of it. Now, obviously, you you will have seen, as as did the rest of us, that there was a slight hiccup in closing the canister because when it scooped down, that brilliant video of it scooping down and then all the material flying off the surface yeah. was that it originally couldn't quite close correctly because it had collected far too much material. Had that been expected? I mean, was that a total surprise to you? It was a surprise to me, yeah. I mean, basically, the mission was a victim of its own success, that it has this flap that automatically comes down, but there were some big chunks of rock that were wedging it open. So we think that the container got completely full, but then some bits of it kind of drifted drifted out afterwards. So do you know now whether you've got the sort of maximum 60 grams or in the process of having to close the canister, did you lose some sample? So certainly some sample kind of drifted out of the collector, yes, but we're pretty confident that we've got quite a lot of sample in there. There's a camera that's looked at the sample collection head and you can actually see material in it. So we're pretty confident that uh, that it's going to be fine. <laughs> now, can you do any analysis at all during its return journey home or will you actually have to sit very patiently and wait until you get your hands on some? Yes. So at the moment, the sample is now sealed inside the sample return capsule and um, there's nothing we could do except wait. <laughs> so why Bennu? What is it or was it about this asteroid in particular when there are millions out there? Bennu ticked all the boxes in that um, firstly, it has an orbit that is about the same distance from the sun as the Earth is. So, so it's a near-Earth asteroid. So it's easier to us, for us to get to than something that's in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Secondly, its composition seemed to be really interesting. It's what's uh, an asteroid that we think is rich in carbon and maybe in water. And we think asteroids like this may have hit the early Earth and uh, provided all the ingredients for life and the oceans and that created the Earth that we see today. So we wanted to target an asteroid like this that may tell us something about our own origins. Yeah, that is a quite unusual because whenever I think of asteroids, I think iron rich. Is is that right to me to think that? Yeah. So a lot of what we know about asteroids, we know from meteorites that have landed on Earth. Most meteorites actually 
come from asteroids. And historically, a lot of meteorites that were picked up were made out of iron, but that's probably a, a, a bias of collection that, that um, obviously if you see a lump of iron in your, in your way when you're going for a walk, you, you recognize it as something yeah, really it's very unusual, distinctive, very distinctive. Most bits of asteroid are actually made of rock, and so they're actually much harder to distinguish from uh, terrestrial rocks and, unless you kind of have an eye for what you're looking for. And I suppose there's also the case that if it had been, you know, one of these really hard iron asteroids, then the sample collector would have just bounced off and not <laughs> yeah. actually or sort of broken its nose cone <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked very well, would it? Um, and Bennu itself is is pretty big. Well, it's 500 metres. Depends what you're it's taller than a big tower block. It's taller than a big tower block, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not something you would want to impact the Earth, put it that way. It would cause massive amounts of damage. And actually, that's another reason that Bennu was chosen, is that there is a tiny chance that it might hit the Earth in a few hundred years' time. So we wanted to learn more about its orbit and how that's changing over time. Now, you're going to get the material. It, it, it's due back in 2023. Yep. When will you get the material? You know, we're so lucky to be part of the science team, which means that we should get it within the first six months of it landing. So it lands in Utah and then it will be uh, transported to Houston. And then the curation team there will open up the capsule and um, then they will send pieces out to the science team members around the world. And how much of that material will you get? What I get depends a little bit on what comes back. So we still don't know the exact amount that's in that capsule and uh, we won't know exactly till 2023. So what I would love to get is a thin section of it. So that's a very, very, very thin slice of, of the rock, which we can put in our microscopes and that will enable us to be able to identify what kind of rock it is. Now, what do you hope to learn from your sample about asteroids that either we don't know yet or perhaps needs clarifying? What we're hoping is that asteroids like Bennu date from the very earliest times of the solar system. So they can really tell us how the solar system formed and evolved and how the planets were born. So we can learn a little bit about that from meteorites that we think come from asteroids. But um, sample return missions like OSIRIS-REx have the advantage over meteorites because firstly they're uncontaminated so they haven't been hanging around a cow's field or in a lake or wherever the meteorite ha happens to have fallen. Secondly one of the problems with meteorites is we never know where they're from so we don't know which asteroid they're from or if they're from an asteroid and so space missions like OSIRIS-REx are basically our field trips that we can actually go out and we can find a sample we know exactly where it's come from and so we can put it in the context of um, the parent asteroid that it came from. And thirdly, maybe most excitingly, we could find that Bennu is unlike anything that's in our meteorite collection, that it's completely new to us. And that's fairly likely because, because asteroids like Bennu are likely to be very, very fragile and materials like that might break up very easily when they come to the surface of the Earth. And so we might not have things like Bennu in our meteorite collection already. So what I'm hoping for is that this will be something completely new to us, a beautiful, fresh, uncontaminated sample of an asteroid that we can place in its planetary context and uh, use it to learn all about how the solar system formed and evolved. 
And if it's anything like the Rosetta mission, which did a similar thing but didn't collect samples from the uh, surface landing on a comet, I mean, the science that they learn about comets was extraordinary and it's still ongoing. Um, are you hoping it will be as successful a, a, as that in a, in a way? It's like, as you say, it's the, it's what yet what you may discover that could be the most surprising. Yeah, exactly. What we, what we don't know is, is the most exciting thing of all, right? We don't know what we're going to discover when we get the sample back. And the brilliant thing about sample return missions like Ceratorex is it's a gift that gives on, keeps on giving. So, you know, Rosetta, we're learning new things even years uh, after after the mission um, ha, ha, has reached its peak. But if we have a sample returned from a place, then scientists 50 years from now, 100 years from now, will still have that sample. They can still learn new things. They can answer questions that had never even occurred to us using these, uh, this sample of an asteroid. So it's it's a resource that will be with us forever, hopefully. Dr. Sarah Russell from the Natural History Museum in London, member of the OSIRIS-REx science team, the rather huge OSIRIS-REx science team. Now, I just want to mention at this point, I saw the original concept model of OSIRIS-REx when I was at Lockheed Martin, because we built it. This was in Denver. and this is in I had to look it up. It was 2013. And they hadn't entirely figured it out because the sampling bit, I wish I had a picture of this, the sampling part of the spacecraft was made out of Lego. Oh, <laughs> so they just hadn't worked out how they were, how they were going to do those. Uh, David, I mean, sample return, it's a, it's a key technology, isn't it, for, for future space exploration? You're quite right. Uh, every space agency is talking about sample return as the key, key thing for the next decade. Because if you think about it, we've been practically everywhere that's interesting. We've visited all types of objects. Uh, but what we don't have is samples of these objects. So samples of asteroids, uh, samples particularly of Mars, and perhaps other things are the name of the game over the next uh, 10 years or so, because we are now in the phase whereby we know what these things look like. We've done in situ measurements, but you know it's nothing compared to what we could do if we get the stuff back in the lab. I suppose it also proves the capability of uncrewed spacecraft, having robotic spacecraft, because there's always that big... Um, divide between those who are pro-astronauts doing it in situ or the robotic craft? Yeah, it's horses for courses as far as I'm concerned. I mean, yes, you wouldn't risk the lives of of astronauts to go and pick up a sample of a comet or um, an asteroid. It's different types of things. I mean, if you send a robot, all you get back is science. But that's good if all you want is science. You know, if you want a piece of material to analyse, then that is the way to do it. So whilst, you know, human spaceflight gives you, I, I consider, much more, of course, robots going all over the solar system, looking, bringing things back, is what uh, solar system science is all about. I do um, think, though, that it was the Rosetta mission that really got people's imagination and and that was a simple well simple I say simple <laughs> loosely <laughs> touchdown <laughs> several times as it happens um but without the sample return but that really caught people's imagination got them totally on board um I wonder I mean I do wonder whether NASA was sort of watching that and thinking oh wow you know this this is then is going to be good <laughs> that's right I mean NASA 
you could look back and say NASA has made some poor calls, you know, in recent decades. I mean, not being involved in uh, with Europe in a solar observatory was one of them, and actually not being involved in the the mission to Rosetta or a similar comet was was another. You would have thought that would have been right up JPL's street, but because of various reasons, particularly because of Mars and the money needed to develop the craft and the samples, sample analysis for that. Um, NASA did miss out on a few things, and I think you're quite right. They did kick themselves when they saw these spectacular pictures from that comet, and what a wonderful mission it was. Yeah. I, I must admit, I, I'm really excited about Bennu. I didn't think I would be until... I think, as I mentioned in the the, the, the interview with, with Sarah, I saw the video of this, you know, that they obviously slowed it down a bit so that it went went down. And then you saw the amount of rock and dust sort of splatter off the surface. And it for me, that was a bit of a wow moment. You're quite right. I, I, didn't, I didn't get that impression with um, Rosetta. When that mission interacted with the surface. You got the impression that, it, well, it was an ice breakier, ice and dust mixed together, and not much stuff uh, flew up or was dispersed. But this mission, oh, Bennu, Bennu, there's, there's no ice there, but and everything's just like, um, it's like a f- flying pile of dust in formation. It's very loose, it's very gravelly, and as you said, touch it a slightest bit, and it flies in all directions. It's a completely different type of comet than a uh, type of object than uh, than the one Rosetta looked at, and fascinating. I mean that that thing that they put on the surface, and actually they blew through it, didn't they? And then the side effect of blowing across something means part of it gets sucked into that uh, that sample collector, and they got too much, as you said, they got too much. They couldn't <laughs> close it afterwards. Yes. Well, still to come, we'll be talking about President-elect Biden's space ambitions and what space exploration will look like in 50 years' time. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. To get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, you can also email us on info at boffinmedia.co.uk. And if you like the podcast, do write a nice review on your podcast platform, because apparently these make a big difference. Apparently. Yeah, if you don't like the podcast, don't no, do yeah, that. Don't, yeah, don't, don't do that. No, don't do that if you don't like it. Um, we should also take the opportunity to congratulate uh, Suichi Noguchi, I think that's right, uh, on becoming only the third astronaut to fly in three Three different spacecraft. So that's shuttle. Yep. Soyuz. Yep. Dragon. Yep. Yep. Uh, and there is some debate about you know whether he's number three in the list or five in the list because there were sort of combinations oh. of launch systems when you're looking at sort of Saturn rockets. Oh, right. um, it gets all technical, but I think the other two are well. The other two are. It's not about thinking. They are. Uh, Wally Shearer. Um, who flew Mercury, Gemini and Apollo 7, fifth American in space, and John Young. I mean, John Young is the most remarkable of all the astronauts. Uh, Flew Gemini, Apollo 16, and commanded the first space shuttle. It was like every spacecraft, he was kind of there, you know, in the the seat. So absolutely amazing man. Space Boffins, as you probably know, is supported by the UK Space Agency. And the UK is part of the most ambitious space project since the International Space Station. Or possibly even Apollo, maybe, maybe not, but it is returning to the moon. We must overcome radiation, isolation, 
gravity, and extreme environments like never before. These are the challenges we face to push the bounds of humanity. We're going to the moon to stay by 2024. That's a NASA promo for Artemis. And we can talk more about that uh, date in a few minutes with our guest, David Whitehouse. Uh, But Artemis is named after the sister of Apollo. And the headline is to put a woman on the moon. Well, the international project encompasses the SLS rocket, Orion, a lunar lander, and also Gateway, a space station in lunar orbit. Gateway will include a refueling module designed to service landers and other spacecraft. It's being built in the UK by Talus Alenia Space. I've been speaking to the company's UK CEO, Andrew Staniland. Today, I don't know the exact figure, but it's above 50% of the total pressurised modules on the space station have been manufactured by Talus Alenia Space. We are the preeminent leader in Europe for uh, manned space infrastructure and and all of that heritage and history and expertise is going to be necessary for this massive challenge for the uh, lunar gateway Uh, and these are the the, for the most part these habitable modules which i mean we always describe them as just you know tubes but (laughs) there's a lot there's a lot more to them they are spacecraft if you like in in their own right that's right i mean most of it i guess it's it's hard to even for somebody like me and you who've spent most of our life in this industry, it's, it's hard to actually envisage how these things are built, but they're designed to be built in space. So every element of you know, Skylab, International Space Station, EMEA, uh, and now the Gateway will be assembled in space. So it, all the elements are in their own right a spacecraft. They have, they have to be able to get there somehow and then be assembled, in, in the case of the Gateway, in orbit around the moon. And one of the the key parts of this is this esprit, and um, part of that is a refueling module, and that's going to be done in the in the in the UK. So tell me about that. What what does that involve? I assume I'm saying it right. Is esprit esprit? It, it is esprit. Yes, esprit. And esprit is the European system providing refueling infrastructure and telecommunications. So esprit satisfies two purposes. It, it provides communications from the gateway to the moon. But it also provides a refueling module, the ERM, which is there for two purposes. It's the, the module that keeps the gateway running. So it provides the refueling for the gateway itself and keeps it in orbit around the moon. But also it provides a means to fuel both the lunar landers and, if we so choose, the missions to Mars from the future. The gateway will be both a gateway to the moon and a gateway to Mars. So this is really a, a fuel station in space. It's not petrol, though, is it? No, it's not. No, it's two forms of propellant, uh, a more traditional chemical propellant that we use for a lot of spacecraft over history, but a more advanced xenon propellant, which uh, is really important for keeping the weight down of the overall system. One of the, the main challenges of the Lunar Gateway is this is a deep space gateway a deep space system so some of the challenges are a lot different than we've seen on the space station which although it is in outer space it's it's in 
Earth orbit, which is a lot closer, and therefore the environment is a lot less harsh. Uh, and what's interesting about this, it's almost building um, an infrastructure in space, isn't it? I mean, we will be talking on Space Boffins to companies building the communication systems for, for the moon. But this is, you know, developing something that's designed to stay there a while. So you've got, you know, a, a refueling system that can last into the future and is future proofed. It is. There are some some major challenges that uh, we will have to solve. I mean, it's it's there for, as you say, for quite some years. It will need to serve many purposes. It will be a uh, a holding station, if you like, for people to stay in, as well as being the leap-off point for the Moon and Mars, as I said before. But it won't be permanently manned. It's only designed to be manned by three or four people for one to three months at a time, depending on the mission, depending on the criteria. So a lot of the system, a lot of the space station will have to be autonomous. There'll be a much higher reliance on robotics, both internally and externally than on the space station. There'll be a a robotic arm, same as on the uh, space station. And that brings with it quite a few different challenges in terms of how you design it, how it works, and uh, how you keep it working when people aren't there. Well, I wanted to pick up on that because, you, yes, you've got this fuel station, but a fuel station needs refueling itself, doesn't it? So, it, 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 again, it's part of this bigger infrastructure. You've got to have spacecraft coming up with fuel to refuel your fueling station so you can refuel the landers or or missions to Mars. That's right. So you'll see when the, the artist's impression of how this space station will look like when it's... Uh, in the public domain, there's lots of different modules and, and some of it is within our control and some of it isn't. So the uh, the resupply, the logistics, is a uh, NASA and Japanese space agency, JAXA, uh, collaboration. So that will have to connect in. So a lot, of, a lot of the challenges will be logistical challenges. Everything has to fit together. So all of the connectors and all of the, uh, the ways of moving around the space station will need to be compatible but also the schedules all need to align. Everything fits into the overarching Artemis schedule over the next decade. Different pieces that are late will have a knock-on impact to everything else. Oh, you touched on the time there. I mean, NASA is still talking, whether this will change with the new president, but it's still talking 2024 for getting a woman on the moon. I mean, this seems very ambitious. It does, it does. And I think... We will wait and see what happens with the new president. There are already uh, discussions in the media from previous members of the uh, the NASA administration uh, about whether that deadline is realistic or not. I think time will tell. Clearly, there is no question that this will remain one of the cornerstones of NASA's mission portfolio for the future, but it, it is massively ambitious. We will see whether the funding is increased. What's important for for the world, I guess, is that all of the different contracts are being signed. So the program is going ahead and all of the countries are signing up to the Artemis Accords to be part of this mission. So whether it's 2024 that we see the next humans walking on the moon or 2025 or six, only time will tell. But clearly this is this is going to be the cornerstone of human exploration for the next decade and years to come. Uh, and I mean, you know, the, in a way, the um, the deadline is 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 irrelevant, really, isn't it? But the point is that 
you know, you are all building this stuff. This stuff is being built. This is not the stuff of science fiction. You're actually building no, no, a space yeah. station to go around the moon and yeah. there's going to be a lander and there's going to be people on the moon again. This is real stuff that's really happening. It is fantastic. It only seems like science fiction, I think, because it's so long since we were on the moon in the first place. We probably should have been there many years earlier if we if we continued. But, uh, you know, that was a different time and different drivers. The way space has evolved and space science and, and the engineering, lots of this program can happen independently. The gateway is not scheduled to be in orbit until, at the moment, until a couple of years, three years after we land on the moon. So it's not necessary to have the gateway to return to the moon. The most important thing is the program is underway and it is going to happen and it is going to be a very, very inspiring thing for, for all of us to watch over the next decade. Andrew Staniland, uh, CEO of Talus Alenia Space UK. Well, our guest is a space journalist and author, Dr. David Whitehouse. Um, David, you know, the UK was a signatory to the original ISS agreement, but it only put money in relatively recently. But this time, the UK is committing to be part of Artemis right from the start. Do you find that heartening? Well, yes, I do, because... Um, as you implied earlier on in, 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 the, in the show, there's always been in the UK this argument between uh, human exploration and robots. And it's only in the last 10 years or so that really the human side has been expressed and has been coming out. So anything the UK does to get involved in the human exploration, the solar system, and the first steps back on the moon, is, is I think, wonderful and gives us a more complete space program than, than we had before. Now, this is a, an international project, but without Russian or Chinese support. Um, what, do you think that's a good thing or, or not? It's inevitable at the moment. Um, Chinese support is politically unacceptable at the moment, given the interaction between China and America and, you know, the Chinese economy and the problems they have with, you know, relations and the suspicion of Chinese uh, technology not being straightforward and upfront. It's always been the case that America hasn't wanted China. And even when it would obviously be a good idea in some respects, they still don't want it for the same reasons. Russia is, I'm afraid, the fact that Russia is not involved in this is a sign of it that it's a declining space power. That its ability to do things is is nowhere near as much as it was even 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so that is that is part of something which is more generational than China. China is going to have its own space program, obviously, and is going to do wonderful things. But Russia's best days, as far as you can see it at the moment, are behind it. Uh, what about this um, twenty twenty four deadline? I mean, Andrew in that interview kind of you know alluded to the fact that it's almost certainly going to. And it slip. has been in the papers. As yeah, well, it's been it? quite a lot on it. Yeah, yeah, uh, twenty four twenty four would be nice. And the nice thing about it was that it was it's a couple of missions away. There are only a small number of missions between now and the first uh, landing on the moon. Uh, but the reason why 2024 was decided was because when Trump came in to the space program and said, when are you going back to the moon to NASA? And they said 2028. Now, 2028 is way beyond his second term. <laughs> <laughs> when he was thinking well. about having a second term. And 2024 was not. Well, so there was some thinking that this would be a crowning achievement of Trump's second term. And that was the reason why he got them to speed up and say, can you do it in 2024? But you're quite right. It doesn't really matter in the scheme of things if it's 25 or 26. 
Uh, the important thing is that it, as the, the person you just interviewed said, it's en route, it's going, it's on its way, money's being spent. And interestingly, NASA did something very interesting over the past year or so in the fact that they've done what you must do to keep the project going and make it more resistant to being cancelled by, by Congress. And that's to internationalise the programme. We've heard that um, components have been made in Britain. Major components uh, of Artemis are being made uh, in Europe. So, And there are agreements with Japan, with Canada, some minor ones with other countries. So if Congress is going to cancel this, and it probably can't, then these people are going to be very fed up because they've signed up to this. So that's one more way of protecting this project. But you're quite right, the 2024 date is flexible. It doesn't have to be 2024. Uh, 25, 6, 7, that's fine, as long as the thing is heading to the moon. It's really interesting. You, you've talked about um, President Trump and it, it being within his second term. It, it's This is very similar parallel. I mean, for very different circumstances. But, you know, Kennedy kickstarting the... Uh, the Apollo program to the moon and Nixon essentially being there um, when they when they land on the moon and, and re- return to Earth. So, I mean, it brings us on to um, a, a Biden presidency. I mean, he was very much around when the Apollo moon landings happened. Uh, do you think he, he's on board with this? Well, he's never said very much about space, but he was part of the obviously the Obama administration, which was terrible on space. (laughs) I mean, Obama cancelled the Constellation program, which was um, Bush Jr.'s idea, which would have had us on the moon by now and would have been much cheaper than what we're spending now. So he wanted us to go to an asteroid. Well, President Obama's done wonderful things, but that was just not um, what the world's leading spacefaring nation should have done. Um, so that died a death for a while. And you, you, I think you must remember all the um, Neil Armstrong and everybody else testified and talked that this was a bad idea. So fair play to Trump for, for getting this thing started again. And, and Jim Bridenstine, because he has been really good for NASA. He has. He's, he's been the best thing for NASA for years. He's the first elected official that... Um, that uh, is elected to NASA administrator. He's not. A, he wasn't an insider, uh, a NASA insider. It wasn't an industry person coming in from another part of the space business. He's done very good. I think that uh, we, people would be sad to see him go, because he didn't come. He came in with no particular allegiance. You know, the problem with NASA often is that um, you, you sp- they spend so much time put in political arguments. They spend so much time trying to pacify the. Unmanned science, uncrewed scientists versus the crude scientists, so to speak, mission, so to speak. Um, that um, having this Bryden's focus has been really good, and I hope they manage to keep that. Um, but have you noticed that it's apart from Kennedy and LBJ, it's always the Democrats that pull the brakes on the space program, and the Republicans that want to push it forward for some reason. Um, yes. But Biden, Biden, I'm sure Biden is not as keen on space. They've already said, I think, I read in the press um, that uh, it was unlikely that Space Force was going to be cancelled. That's right. I think that that's become so institutionalised now. And, of course, that's now become part of the troops. That's become part of the military. And that has a special relationship with the president, you know, in America. These things are treated 
differently from what they do in many other countries. But Biden, if he wanted to pull back on, on Artemis, he might not be able to do so because Artemis has widespread cross-aisle support in the Senate. And it's likely the Democrats are not going to control the Senate. And there's a lot of Democrats and Republicans who want Artemis. So if he wanted to push through scaling it back, extending the program uh, by very much, he probably couldn't get it past the Senate. And then again, I've heard that Biden and the transition team, they're quite keen on the idea of having a big thing in a time of horrible things. You know, the, the 2020 is synonymous now with, with well, rubbish. You know, it's a terrible year. You know, we've, and there are lots of things that have gone wrong in many fields. Having this sort of multi-year goal towards the end of his presidency, because I think with all the best will in the world, Biden will probably only serve one term, um, might be something that appeals to him and has other dimensions other than just, you know, going back to the moon. It would satisfy other aspects of unification and bringing the country together. Now, last time you were on the podcast, um, you'd not long had released your book, Apollo 11, The Inside Story. So that was looking at space history. And now your latest book, Space 2069, is looking into the future. So how do you see not just the the immediate few years with, with Artemis, but how do you see the next 50 years mapping out? Well, the nice thing about writing a book like that is that I'm not going to be around to prove, be proved wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was a sequel, actually, because Apollo, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo. And for a follow-up, I thought, well, why don't we celebrate the 100th anniversary of Apollo? And that gives you scope to uh, look forward in your writing and also plant yourself in the future and look back and look around and try tell the story. Well, as far as humans are concerned, it's Moon and Mars. Um, and there's plenty of time to get to the, to, to the Moon and Mars by 2069. I had the landing on the Moon this decade, the establishment of a lunar base in the 2030s, the exploitation of, of ice for fuel and for a, a lunar base in the 2030s, putting a colony together on the Moon, and also the first trips to Mars. And in my book, the first trip is an not a landing trip with people. They, the journey is going to be the big thing. So they they test the journey first without landing when they get there in the early 2040s. So by the time 2069 comes along, I expect we'll have been on Mars for 15 years or so at least. So that there's plenty of time to do these things. Um, but what I try to do with the book is I try to keep it realistic because... Well, one reviewer said there are no unicorns flying silver spaceships to Mars, in a reference to Elon Musk, who uh, wants us all to get, wants thousands of people to go to Mars in what is just a few years' time. Well, I say that is not going to happen. That's great idealism, but that is not going to happen. There was a recent report that said even if all the money was available to go to Mars, a mission, a human mission, could not be started until the late 2030s. And that's sort of roughly the timescale. So I had great fun in imagining how you would go back to the moon and then realising that Mars isn't the moon, but a bit further. We know about Mars. We know about the planet, the surface, the atmosphere, the pressures, the chemicals, the winds. We know we can live on Mars. It's physics. We understand what we do not understand in, in, in hardly at all is the vast journey between our planets. 
So I had a big section on that vast journey. And uh, so that sort of really told the story of humans going out into space. Because I cannot see by 2069 that we would have got further than Mars because Jupiter, Saturn, you know, they're all so much further away. And there's almost so much more radiation out there. And you have to live in space for so much longer. And I don't think we're going to be up to that for a long time. So, I mean, if we just come back to the moon, do you think this moon village idea will become a reality? This, you know, I suppose the the big headline from Jan Werner's time as uh, ESA Director General. Yeah, um, it, it is yet to be organised, the moon village. I mean, clearly America's going back to the moon and there will be a handful of missions there before we start pulling together a permanent base and it will be at the South Pole because there's so many reasons why that is the best place to go. So over the next decade, I say, there's going to be a lot of detailed negotiations, not just of being part of Artemis, but being part of the of the colony, part of the base on the moon. And that's going to be absolutely fascinating because there's so much that we understand, so much that we don't know. It's a unique environment at the South Pole of the Moon. And if we can conquer that, then that means that apart from the journey, the big journey, we are well resourced to, to go and use the same technology to go and land on Mars. So this decade, I think, will be America going back to the Moon with lots of partners. But I think as that progresses, a lot more people will be a lot more interested in being a big player in establishing the first base at Shackleton Crater on the South Pole of the Moon. I mean, this, this is all, you know, this is almost a conversation we could have been having had we been, or had I been around, uh, in the kind of late 60s or, you know, early 70s of all the things. I mean, I was around in the early 70s, uh, but I was only four. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that, you know, these are things that we kind of feel should have happened um, and are now finally actually happening. You're quite right. I mean, when Apollo went to the moon, it was a time of where do we go next? What do we do? But this was Nixon again, uh, and this was political reality because there was a um, a celebration after Armstrong, Aldrin, Collins got back from the moon, and Nixon held up a glass of wine and said, "Here's to Apollo. It's all over." And um, everybody looked at each other as if to say, "What on earth is he talking about?" And then they realised, then NASA realised it had made a mistake. Um, in assuming that the politicians would want to do more. As far as they were concerned, they'd beaten the Russians and there was Vietnam in front of them, the poor people's marches. All this costed money. And NASA had bet the farm on Spiro Agnew, the vice president, being able to convince Nixon to go on to Mars by the mid-1980s. And Nixon took no notice and wasn't interested in what Spiro Agnew said. So that really pushed the moon far away and for the next, and then they got involved in building a space station and first the shuttle. And that was so expensive that any idea of actually going doing anything other than that went away until 20 years ago. And since then, we've had a few stops and starts. So this goes to show that a few wrong decisions, if you like, a few investments in a major project like shuttle and space station can mean you don't do anything else. Fortunately, at the moment, the major project is going back to the moon. There's nothing really else that's competing for it. So let's hope it's different this time. 
Dr. David Whitehouse, thank you very much for joining us again. And a reminder that his latest book, Space 2069, is out now. And I must say, by the way, from our piece earlier, because I had to look it up what esprit meant, because I was thinking, oh, esprit. And, you know, the dictionary definition, lively, vivacious, um, which, or witty is a great name. But it's actually, it's definitely an acronym, of course. It it's, is. He does, he does give the yeah, acronym. Yeah, I, I, I just love that. European system providing refueling infrastructure and telecommunications. So... Uh, Witty, lively, vivacious. Just like us. <laughs> uh, thanks very much to the UK Space Agency for supporting the Space Boffins podcast. We'll have more on the UK involvement in missions to the moon over the coming months. And we leave you with the first launch of the first astronaut to fly in three different spacecraft. Wally Shearer. Here he is launching in his Mercury spacecraft in 1962. Thanks for listening.